men. Before I married a northern Minnesota girl, I got introduced to a radio personality and comedian named Garrison Keeler. Anybody ever hear of Garrison Keeler? I knew the Polifkas. They are some Minnesotans. I knew they have heard of them. Who else? Show me hands. Okay, several of you, okay? Several of you. He is a Minnesota folklore staple, if you don't know anything about Garrison Keeler. And uh, that man actually helped me during those dating days to understand the unique culture that I was about to marry into. I had never heard of this guy, and the first time I ever heard of him was one night, and it was late, and I'm riding along in the car with Kristen and her two brothers. We're en route to go all the way up north to her home in Hibbing, Minnesota, and we were all dead tired. And it's not wise to drive on the road when you're dead tired, so we're doing anything we can to stay awake. We were doing freeze-outs. Have you ever done those? Where you roll the windows down and you let all that cold air come in until you can't stand it anymore, just to keep us awake. And then it's like, roll the windows up. So we switched to the radio. And we really couldn't land on a station in range that we all liked. And then I remember her younger brother, Josh, who was in the passenger seat. Her older brother, John, was driving. And Josh flipped the radio to an AM radio station. And it landed crystal clear on a rerun of Prairie Home Companion. That was Garrison Keillor's Minnesota Public Radio um, special show. And I remember for the next two hours vividly hearing John and Josh just laughing hysterically at Garrison Keeler, making fun of Scandinavian life at the lake house up north. And quite honestly, most of those jokes at that time made zero sense to me because I'd never experienced it. But... Now that I've lived it almost 24 years, I can go back to some of those clips and just die laughing because I've experienced that culture way up north. But that night, there was a segment in that Prairie Home Companion show that did make me laugh, and it was called Worst Case Scenario. Worst Case Scenario, and what it is, is this guy on Garrison's team he acts like he's the expert. And you can call in to the expert and you can ask Frank to give you the worst case scenario for any given decision that you need to make. And so just to give you an idea of what this program was like, here is a clip of one of their worst case scenario spoofs. Let's come in here with just a little message from worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, when it's important to know the worst that could happen. Worst case scenario, Frank here. Hey, the wife and I were thinking about taking in a movie tonight, and we sort of wondered uh, what could happen. Worst case scenario, you could bend over to see what was on the floor your foot was stuck to and knock yourself unconscious on the seat back and tip over into the lap of the woman next to you 
who could scream for the manager and he could turn on the lights and shut off the movie and people in the audience could pelt you with M&Ms and raisin balls. And by the time you explained everything, the newspaper reporter could already have filed his story and the next day your boss could fire you and in the divorce settlement your wife could get everything except your brown suit and you could spend the rest of your life walking along roadways with a big garbage bag picking up aluminum cans. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Say, Frank, you still there? Yeah, here, I'm here. I'm the, um, I don't need to go into a lot of detail on this, but I mean, I'm the host of a radio show and we were kind of thinking about doing our show uh, live on television. What would be the, what would be the worst? Uh... Are, you, are you sure you want the worst case scenario on that? I see your point. Worst case scenario, when you need to know the worst sometimes, but not necessarily right while you're doing it. That there is funny right there, don't you know? Oh, yeah, you betcha, oofta, amen? What makes spoofs like these funny to so many different people is because it's a way that they explain the devastating effects of Murphy's Law. And if you never heard of what Murphy's Law is, it can be described this way. It's the old adage, anything that can go wrong will go wrong and at the worst possible time. Well, this morning as we look into God's word together, we're going to see a father having to face his worst case scenario. As one pastor author put it, it should have been called Jacob's law instead of Murphy's law because Jacob lived earlier. So I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 42, for those who are new here, we've been going through the life of Joseph in Genesis, and we left off in Genesis 42, verse 28 last week, and so just by way of review, remember where we left off, Jacob's nine sons have returned home from Egypt during this severe famine, and from Jacob's vantage point, when they walk into home, what could go wrong did go wrong and at the worst possible time. It was so bad, you see his response, verse 36. All this has come against me. Have you ever had moments in your life where you felt like that, friend? Where you felt like everything was coming against you and at the worst possible time. If you've ever felt like that, you're not alone. Jacob could relate with you, and there are others. And it's imperative for you and for me when everything seems like it's coming against us, it's imperative for us to handle those moments in a way that pleases God. So we're going to look at this text this morning for answers to this important question. What do you do when everything has come against you? By way of review, for the past 22 years, Jacob had been grieving the loss of his favorite son, Joseph. Ten of his sons were guilty of selling Joseph into slavery to Egypt. And after they sold him off, they dipped that 
special robe that Jacob gave his favorite son Joseph. They dipped that in goat's blood and they brought it to their father and they led him to believe that a fierce animal devoured Joseph and tore him to pieces. And so while he was in Egypt, Joseph went from being put into prison to later being promoted to prime minister of Egypt. And as prime minister, he was given responsibility to store up all this grain for the seven years of plenty so that they would have food to be able to sell not only to the Egyptians, but to everyone around during the seven years of famine. And the famine was so, so severe that it even reached into the land of Canaan where Jacob and his sons lived. And so Jacob sent 10 of his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And he kept back Benjamin, his youngest son, because Benjamin came from his favorite wife and he was the only memory left that he had of Rachel. And verse 8 tells us in Genesis 42 that Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Verse 7, he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Verse 9, he accused them of being spies. Verse 24, he took Simeon from them, kept him in prison. And in verses 19 and 20, he let the rest go, ordered them to bring your youngest brother to me in order to prove that you're honest men. So verse 16, we know that this is a test that Joseph gives out to his brothers. He wanted to see, he wanted to find out what do these guys now think about God? He wanted to know also, what do they think of my father? What do they think of my younger brother, Benjamin? And so he intentionally gave them this test that we looked at last week in order to be used of God to awaken them, awaken their consciences so that they would fear God and repent. And that takes us to where we left off last week. Join with me, verse 27 of Genesis 42. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One's no more. The younger is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain for the famine of your households. Go your way. Bring your younger brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. I'll deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they had seen that and their father saw this bundle they were afraid they were afraid why because they knew 
God was bringing their sin and their guilt just right out into the open, right before their father. You see, friends, this was now the second time that these sons returned to their father with money in their hands and also with news that we don't have a brother. Second time. The last time that happened was 22 years earlier. They came to their father. They had 20 shekels of silver and no Joseph. Now they have 10 sacks of money and no Simeon. Keep in mind as Jacob is listening to this, he's trying to process everything he is hearing and remembering fully what God had told him earlier in his life. Draw your attention to what God said to Jacob earlier, Genesis 35, 10 and 11. He said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And I want you to pay attention to this. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. That's going to be important for this text this morning. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So Jacob's remembering what God told him earlier, and he's processing this. Okay, I had 12 sons. Now I'm down to 10. And at this rate, I'm going to lose my entire family if I let these boys keep this up. And if that happens, then God's not going to be able to do what he promised me. And so verse 36, Jacob, their father, cried out and said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. In essence, you're making me childless. Joseph's no more. Simeon's no more. Now you take Benjamin? All this has come against me. You see, he's already envisioning his worst case scenario, isn't he? He didn't even have to call Frank, right, for advice on what is the worst case scenario here. He was for certain that he was going to lose not just Simeon, but now also who? Benjamin. Now his sons here show they were changing. They wanted to prove that they truly were honest men. They wanted to rescue their brother Simeon. They wanted to provide for their family. So verse 37, Reuben steps up. You'll notice here he makes a ridiculously outrageous offer, said to his father, I'll be responsible for Benjamin. You can kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands. I'll bring him back to you. Would you make an offer like that? I'm not so sure I would. But this guy, Reuben, was looking for all kinds of ways to get back on his father's good side. And you say, well, what happened? How did he get on his dad's bad side? Well, Genesis chapter 35, he dishonored his father Jacob by sleeping with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Reuben's the oldest son, friends. What that means is he was the one that's responsible for all his brother's safety and we know he miserably failed to protect his brother Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. No way was Jacob going to put his only other son from Rachel, his favorite wife, into Reuben's care. Uh-uh, not going to do it. 
he would rather, as you're going to notice here, starve than to let Reuben have Benjamin. Verse 38, he said, no way. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, that would be the death of me. You would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. It's almost like you can hear Jacob singing to himself a different variation of a familiar tune. No one loves me. This I know. My misfortunes tell me so. Right? His reaction here, friends, is recorded in Scripture as a lesson for us this morning as a church. What do you do when everything has come against you? If you're taking one note, here's the message. Don't do what Jacob did. That's it. Okay? You say, well, what did Jacob do? And what should we then do instead? All right? Here's what you should do. Refuse to wallow in self-pity. When everything has come against you, refuse to wallow in self-pity. I realize this morning you might be feeling a lot like Jacob felt for different reasons. Some of you this morning still find yourself licking some old wounds from being hurt in the past by someone. And you're still struggling to move on. Some of you are struggling with some significant, significant health challenges and the end just doesn't even seem to be in sight. Some of you are facing some difficult decisions and there really doesn't seem to be a clear direction when it comes to this decision that you have to make. As a local church, I fully realize you're dealing with a difficult circumstance I imagine that you're possibly letting your minds, if you're not careful, wander to the worst case scenario. And loved ones, I know when life doesn't go your way, it is very easy and it is quite natural for all of us to respond exactly like Jacob, to toss in the towel and exclaim, everything is coming against me. And just throw yourself a giant pity party. Very easy to do. We've all done that before. We have to refuse to wallow in self-pity. It's a terrible witness for Christ, friends. Second, refuse to run to pragmatic solutions. This moves us into chapter 43. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, Buy us a little food. So you see here in just these opening two verses of chapter 43, this man, Jacob, he's just trying to ride this thing out. Maybe this famine will be over soon, and I won't have to send my son. But verse 1 tells us it wasn't over soon. In fact, it got worse. So now he's finding himself with his back up against the wall and he says verse 2 go again and buy us a little food his idea here was if we go and ask this prime minister in Egypt to just give us a little food he'll give us a little and we won't have to send my son Benjamin 
But Judah woke his father up to reality, verse 3, said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you'll send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So clearly, right here at this moment, Jacob finds himself boxed in, right? He only has two options, and neither option is desirable at all. He realizes, I can keep Benjamin, and I can cause my family to starve to death. That's not a good idea. I can send Benjamin to get food, but I can possibly lose Benjamin, my youngest son, forever. So he's left in this tough predicament. And he did what came natural. Notice what he did. Started point fingers. Started the blame. Played that game. Verse 6. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? You ever played the blame game? It's far too easy to do. People have been doing that since the very beginning, right? After Adam and Eve sinned, they started the blame game. Jacob did it too. He's in this frustrating spot, and you can hear it in his voice. He plays the victim card. He says, boys, I'm disappointed in you. Screw your heads on, guys. You should have known he was going to ask you about the family. You should have been prepared for how to answer that question. So then I wouldn't be in this mess. Pointing fingers, playing the blame game, playing the victim card. They replied, verse 7. The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? We're human, Dad. We're not omniscient. Come on. Judah, verse 8, made a very rational proposal. He said to his father, we're in a severe crisis. Send the boy with me and we'll arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Notice how Judas changed, friends. 22 years earlier, he didn't care a lick about his kid brother, did he? He was the one that actually proposed that they sell Joseph into slavery. And now he says, Dad... I guarantee you I will keep Benjamin safe. And if I don't keep my word, then you can do to me what you see fit to be proper consequence, even if it means my inheritance. Verse 10, then he said, if we had not delayed, Dad, if you wouldn't have been so obstinate, we wouldn't have been in this mess. We would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel reluctantly said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, 
aromatic gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And I want you to notice this. Just pay attention to this verses 11 and 12. Kind of ironic that the ones who sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver are now, 22 years later, paying Joseph 20 sacks of silver. Isn't that ironic? It's all a God thing here. And Israel said, verse 13, Take also your brother, rise, go again to the man. This all should remind you of an earlier moment in Jacob's life, what just took place here. Earlier, there was a moment when he was very worried and he was very afraid. What comes to your mind when Jacob was very worried and very afraid? What was he afraid of? His brother. What was he thinking Esau was going to do to him? Kill him. Why? Because he stole the birthright and the blessing. Deceived his dad, got all that. So what did he do to prep for that encounter? Genesis 32 tells us about this pragmatic solution that he whipped up. He took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys, if you're adding it all up, 550 animals as gifts. And he thought, I may appease Esau with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. And you read Genesis 32 and how that plays out, and all of it was overkill, and all of it was unnecessary, because Genesis 34 our 33.4 tells us Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. So here we are, Genesis 43, and Jacob, what is he worried and afraid? What's he afraid about this time? Benjamin's going to die. And so what's the heel grabber do again? He runs to a pragmatic solution. If gifts work for Esau back then, they're surely going to work today for this Egyptian prime minister. And then he said this in verse 14. May God Almighty, there that is again, God Almighty, grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your older brother Simeon and Benjamin. Verse 14, then he surrendered himself, as you read, to the worst case scenario. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved, such is life for someone like me who has everything come against me. My past is stunk. Rachel and Joseph are dead. Now my future's going to stink. I'll never, ever see Benjamin again. Everything has come against me. So what do you do when everything has come against you? One, refuse to wallow in self-pity. Two, refuse to run to pragmatic solutions. Three, remember to trust in God Almighty 
who is always for you. Friends, throughout this entire series, we've been able to see God's sovereign work, have we not? God Almighty promised Jacob that a nation and kings would come from him. God Almighty brought Joseph to Egypt. God Almighty placed Joseph in Potiphar's house. God Almighty put Joseph in prison. God Almighty sent Pharaoh's butler and baker to prison. God Almighty gave them dreams. God Almighty gave Joseph the ability to interpret their dreams. God Almighty gave Pharaoh dreams. God Almighty gave Joseph the ability to interpret his dreams. God Almighty made Joseph prime minister of Egypt. God Almighty sent the famine and God Almighty made the brothers bow before Joseph. God Almighty returned their money back in their grain sacks. God Almighty, friends, he's been safe, sovereignly at work in saving their lives. God wasn't against these people. God wasn't against Jacob. God Almighty was for Jacob. Everything God was doing was meant for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So you can see from Jacob's bad example, and you can discover 10 indicators that will show you when you're not fully trusting in God Almighty. You were given a handout here to explain... Um, or to, to be able to take some of the notes here and you can fill in some of these indicators if you would like. You're not fully trusting in God Almighty when you're controlled by fear, worry, and anxiety. We see that in Jacob's life. Jacob was controlled by fear. Chapter 42, verse 4, Jacob did not send Benjamin on the first trip for he feared that harm might happen to him. And we're not talking about a little boy here, friends. Benjamin was probably in his mid-30s at this time. And yes, Benjamin could have been harmed on that trip. We have to acknowledge that. But Benjamin could also have fallen out of bed at home, right? He could have burned his hands cooking in the fire. He could have fallen off of his bike while riding around in the park. Jacob was so afraid something might happened to Benjamin that he literally tried to control everything that was out of his control. And it led him to making some ridiculous decisions. Decisions like Simeon can remain in prison. I'm not sending my, bro, my, my son Benjamin. All of us can starve as far as I'm concerned. I'm not losing Benjamin. Friend, you're not trusting in God Almighty if you're controlled by fear. Nor are you when you focus on the worst case scenario. Jacob was convinced that the worst was going to happen. Benjamin would be harmed on this journey, which would make him be bereaved of his children, which would then make him die a miserable old man. Worst case scenario. And he was sure that he would be headed to his grave in sorrow for letting Benjamin go with these brothers. How quick he forgot what God Almighty told him even earlier than Genesis 35. Jacob's ladder, where God Almighty said, 
I'm the God of your father Abraham and the God of your father Isaac and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed for I'll not leave you until I've done what I've promised you and loved ones if your minds are gravitating right now to worse case scenarios I would encourage you to turn those around. And here's how. Focus your heart on the goodness of God. Amen? Focus your heart on the promises that God has given you in the scriptures. Count the many blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon your life. You're not trusting in God Almighty when you focus on the worst case scenario. Nor are you when you focus only on yourself. Listen to this insightful observation one pastor wrote about Jacob. He said, a self-centered parent plays favorites and uses his favorite child for his very own fulfillment. And he's right. That's exactly what Jacob did. Jacob's favorite son was Joseph, but now he's gone. So what did he do? Well, I have a second favorite son and his name is Benjamin he's my new favorite son because he came from my favorite wife Rachel and this text shows us just how self-focused Jacob was Genesis 42 36 listen to the pronouns here you bereaved me of my children Joseph's no more Simeon's no more now you take Benjamin all this has come against me Moving down, verse 38, you bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. In the next chapter, chapter 43, verse 6, why did you treat me so badly? So what we see in Jacob here. He was more concerned about himself, about his joy, his happiness, through Benjamin, his son, than he was concerned about his other son, Simeon. I mean, how would you feel if you're one of the other nine sons and you hear your dad say, Benjamin shall not go down with you for Joseph's dead and he's the only one left? Oh, really, dad? What are we, chopped liver? Like, seriously, that's how you think, dad? No, 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 you don't understand. Jo- Benjamin is my, my last source of joy and happiness. Oh, so what do we provide for you? Misery and heartache? What is it, Dad? You're not trusting in God Almighty when you're focused on yourself, nor are you when you blame others for your problems. We saw that Jacob, verse 36, blamed the nine sons for bereaving him of Joseph and now Simeon and now Benjamin. And they were only guilty of bereaving him of just one of those, right? Joseph, yes, they made that deliberate sinful choice. But they did not have control over what happened to Simeon, nor over what could happen to Benjamin. And we observed in the last week, in previous verses of chapter 42, God was using all that to awaken these brothers' guilty consciences. So technically, what God was at work doing through that situation, Joseph's blaming them for it. And in essence, he's ultimately blaming God for his problems. That's what he's doing. You're not trusting in God Almighty when you play the blame game, nor are you when you refuse to admit you're wrong. 
Genesis 42, 38, Jacob was adamant in his initial response to Reuben, my son Benjamin shall not go down with you. And then we read verse, verse 1 of 43, the famine's severe. He, verse 2, tries to hold out. But now notice, they had eaten all the grain. And I told you last week, the trip from where they lived to where the grain was took three weeks, 225 miles. So you got three weeks to go get grain, three weeks to bring grain back. He holds out until they have no grain remaining. So now they go six weeks knowingly without grain. And then he decides, okay, we need grain, so just go and ask for a little grain. No, Benjamin will not be going with you. Just ask for a little. And they repeatedly reminded him what the man said. You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And then Judah politely confronted him for dragging his feet on this decision and making his family suffer as a result. And nowhere in this text do we read about Jacob admitting he was wrong. All we see him doing is reluctantly agreeing to the plan in verses 11 and 13. Friends, you're not trusting in God Almighty when you refuse to acknowledge that you're wrong, nor are you when you ignore God's sovereign work. In Genesis 42:28, when the brothers noticed each of their money was in the mouth of their grain sacks, their hearts failed them, they turned trembling to one another, and for the first time in their lives, they acknowledged God. They said, what is this that God has done to us? They go home, they tell their dad about all of this, and he replies, Genesis 43, 12, ah, come on, guys, what does that have to do with God? Take the money back to the man. I'm sure it was an oversight. You're not trusting in God Almighty when you disregard God's sovereign activity. The boys knew it was from God. Jacob should have too. Nor are you trusting in God Almighty when you're reluctant to submit to God's plan. In Genesis 43, 11, Jacob finally says, in essence, we're going to starve to death if I don't let Benjamin go. You've let me no other choice, I suppose, since I have to, I guess, I'll let Benjamin go with you. And when you read that, clearly his heart was not in it, was it, church? He obviously wasn't viewing this adversity as coming from the loving hand of God Almighty. He blamed some of his adversity on his sons for being so dumb to tell the prime minister that he had a younger brother. And you will know as well as I do that when a person has a proper view of God, a biblical understanding of God's purposes in trials, that person will eagerly submit to God's plan and trust in him. Right, church? It's true. The eighth indicator you're not trusting in God Almighty is when you rely on your own abilities instead of God's grace. Jacob says, everything's come against me. And what did he do? He ran to his own solutions instead of relying on God's grace. Tried to save himself from death by buying off his brother Esau, Genesis 32. It was all unnecessary. Now he tries to save Benjamin from death by buying off this prime minister from Egypt in Genesis 43. And this 19th century evangelist observed here that Jacob always seemed to think that the great end was to gain something. And evidently he believed that this was the motive of the Egyptian prime minister and that therefore he might be bribed into complacency. And that man wrote 
his final remarks about Jacob saying, how often we reveal ourselves and our estimates of others. And you see that so vividly in Jacob's life. He shows us that proud, stubborn people find it very, very difficult to trust in God. Find it very, very difficult to be recipients of God's grace because it removes them from having control. Jacob wanted control. You're not trusting in God Almighty when you resort to your own abilities and solutions, nor are you when you run to God as your last, final effort. We saw that here this morning. The very end, after he tried everything else, Jacob finally brought God in the equation by saying, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And it would have been best if Jacob would have ended his words right there. But he went on and he shows us you're not trusting in God Almighty when you surrender yourself to fate. At the end of verse 14, he shows us that he was viewing all these trials, everything that's come against him, it was all simply the result of the fickle finger of fate. It's almost like you can just hear him take this deep breath and just let out this, so be it. It is what it is. If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Jacob felt like everything had come against him. But creationist and apologist Henry Morris was spot on in his reply to Jacob's response. And this comment that I'm throwing up on the screen for you, church, it is chock full of hope for all of us. So listen to this carefully. Jacob felt like everything had come against him, but in reality, not only were all things not working against Jacob, but as a matter of fact, all things were working together for good. So it often is with God's people, amen? Even when all the circumstances seem negative, God is working positively on behalf of those who are called according to his purpose. There is never just cause to fear that God has let things get out of control. He has higher purposes related to our eternal future for which he's preparing us through such difficulties. That's good stuff, isn't it, church? That has to be our focus. That's the kind of active faith that God Almighty wants you and me to live, to carry out as we go through our trials. He wants us to truly believe these words that I'm going to have you read together with me. Because this whole narrative of Joseph drives us to some great verses in the New Testament that are just so incredibly important for all our lives. And we need to cling to these verses and believe these verses. So when you read these, read these like you believe these, all right? Here they are. Ready? Let's read the reference first. Romans 8, 28 through 39, okay? We're gonna read them all, 28 through 39. Just a few verses on a screen at a time here. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jacob here believed that everything had come against him. And his best case scenario that he hoped for is that Simeon would be freed and be able to return home and Benjamin would be spared from death and be able to return home. But Jacob in this text failed to remember that God Almighty was not against him. Instead, God Almighty was always for Jacob. And if God is for us, say it with me, church. Who can be against us? And as you read the remainder of Genesis, you will see that God Almighty did far more abundantly than Jacob could have ever asked or thought. And you know what? He promises to do the same for his church. And I fully realize that this local church might be thinking, everything has come against us and it's happened at a bad time. And you may be fearing right now, maybe not, but maybe you are the worst case scenario. So as your pastor still, my biblical counsel for each of you in this difficult circumstance is to refuse to wallow in self-pity. Refuse to run to pragmatic solutions. There are all kinds of pragmatic ideas out there about how to grow a church, friends, and it doesn't mean that they're good or best. Understand that. 
Stick to what you know is all sufficient. God has given you his holy word, friends. And his word will give you everything you need for life, faith, practice, and godliness. Refuse to run to pragmatic solutions. Remember to trust in God Almighty who is always for you. So I'd like you to answer these questions out loud. Is God in this trial or not? Say it with authority. Yes, God is in your trial. Answer me again. Is God for you or against you? God is always for us. And because of that, that means that you this morning have to deliberately choose. Are you going to believe that God rewards those who always seek him and trust him? Are you going to truly believe that? and trust in God Almighty, who's always for you. When everything has come against you, take it from Jacob, the very man who actually wrestled with the Lord Jesus Christ. This man's life shows us very vividly, it's foolish to fight against God's purposes and God's plans for the trials in our lives it's foolish to fight instead you can and you must trust in God almighty who is always for you our God is worthy of your praise he's worthy of your devotion your commitment your service and just like he promised Jacob he promises you and he promises me he will be with us And he will work all things out for our good and for his glory alone. And all God's people say, amen. Father, thank thank you for this text. Very timely for us as a church to walk through and to learn. And God, I thank you for your mercy and grace in Jacob's life. And how you use that man to bring to us the Redeemer, the Lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us not respond like Jacob to the difficult trials and circumstances that we face. I pray we would not throw ourselves pity parties or run to our own solutions and rely on our own abilities. But I pray we would just get on our knees and trust in you knowing you're with us, you're always for us. And I pray we would be committed to follow you and your will and your ways all the days of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.